This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So thank you, Gerard, for a very generous introduction. Uh, I'm really not sure if I can do justice either to that or to this uh, poster that uh, I received last week, and I was just shocked, and I sent it to my kids, and my da- daughter thought it looked like a rock concert. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, and I'm a poor musician, so I, I don't know how much of a, you know, how good a job I can do to justify that. So I'll try to um, give you an, like an overview of some of the work I've done, and um, hopefully we'll have some time for questions at the end. <coughs> so I'll try to keep it at a, you know, at a higher level. A lot of the work I do is mathematical, but, I, uh, the, but there won't be a single equation in this lecture. So uh, I hope that's a good thing. <coughs> So uh, what I want to do is kind of uh, initially kind of just uh, you know define a few things that few terms very few simple terms that we use um, and talk about applications to three areas um, and conclude. Okay, so that's my overview. Um, the first definition of a dynamic system because that's in the title. You know what's a dynamic system? Um, again, these are you know words in English, but they're more precisely defined in the context of this lecture. Uh, but basically, it means characterized by variables that change with time. So when you think about this, that um, really characterizes a lot of things. In fact, there's almost nothing in the world uh, stays you know, static. So really, it's, it's everything, right? Obviously, I'm not proposing to uh, have done you know, research in everything. So I'll, I'll uh, specify you know, a, a narrower path here. Um, if you um, look at uh, the, the Original dynamic systems, it really came from Isaac Newton, okay, about 400 years ago. So Newton's, uh, Newtonian dynamics is what it's now called to distinguish from other dynamics. And of course, later on, you know, then there was electrical systems, for example, um, and, you know, which are, again, you applying dynamics to it. There were fluid systems, again, came out of Newton, Newtonian dynamics. Uh, so there are a lot of engineering and scientific systems that qualify under that, of course, including astronomy. Uh, then later on in the 20th, early 20th century, talking about quantum mechanics and so on. Right? So it's really, they're all really dynamic systems. Um, a big application of dynamic system is meteorology, and I'll, and I'll talk about some of the aspects of that. And then, of course, you know, in the, um, I guess after the stock market crash in the 1930s, they started to look at it and saying, well, can we somehow analyze this and figure out what's going on? Uh, and that's kind of really when what give, give rise to a lot of economic system modeling, which are which borrow a lot of this uh, same concepts from dynamic systems that we'll talk about today. And then later on, in the last uh, maybe 20 years or so, there's been a lot of attempt to look at ecological dis, uh, you know systems and all kinds of biological systems uh, as uh, dynamic systems and apply the same principles. Um, it really, there's no end to it. One of the books I picked up recently, about 10 years ago, no, less than that, maybe three, four or five years ago, is called The Dynamics of Marriage. And it, it looks like a general thing, but actually it's full of equations uh, coming from Newtonian dynamics modeling uh, marriage. And, um, you know, my wife got a kick out of that, but uh, <laughs> because it talks about when it fails, for example. So obviously, that's an important uh, consideration. So that's sociological dynamics. Um, so. Uh, given that you know it can be very generic, and again, I, I don't claim to be an expert on all this. I'm just I'm just curious about all these areas. So, um, so I'm going to define a few words that we will use. The first word is modeling or model. So, uh, if you look at any of these systems I talked about, they're very complex. 
right? And and one of the first things we do um, in engineering or science is <coughs> define you know something that's simpler that we can analyze, right? And that would be a model. So it's an approximate representation of reality, right? The reality is something very complex, and we come up with something simplistic. And in the process of doing this, we make a lot of assumptions and approximations, right? Um, you have to make them to make them simple. Um, and typically, we use a lot of empirical principles. So if you look, go back and look at Newton, for example, you know, Newton's was the famous law of F equal to ma, or Einstein's was E equal to mc squares, you know, uh, general relativity and so on. So these are, um, you know, some kind of a mathematical model that we observed to be true from experiment, especially Newtonian dynamics. And then we say, oh, we're going to apply that, right? So there is something that comes from empiricism, from, you know, from observation, right? Um, Okay, that underlies you know, in the model. The second uh, thing we'll talk about uh, that that I'll you know uh, we'll touch upon is an, what's called analysis. So analysis can be very generic, but in this context of dynamic system theory, it basically means predicting behavior. So I have this reality, and I would like to kind of do something with my model, you know, essentially a thought process, and that will result in some prediction that I now want to apply to reality and say, is this is this what reality you know that I'm going to observe in reality? So that's called analysis. Um, and in a context of dynamic systems, a lot of people do control, including some of my colleagues here, which is usually an addition of another dynamic system in order to accomplish an objective. So if you talk about control, a typical simple control system we all use is a cruise control system in your car when you set your speed, which basically you know, does some kind of a measurement to see what your speed is and adjusts it to try to keep the speed to be uh, constant. Right? So that's a adding another dynamic system, modifying it in some fashion in order to accomplish some objective, in this case to hold a constant speed. Optimization is another con you know, the concept that comes up in this context and that is designing a system in order to achieve best performance. I think everybody understands what optimization is, right? to get the best performance, however you define best. And finally, an area that I have been doing a lot of work on and I will focus on in this talk is diagnostics. And diagnostics is usually, um, you know, finding something is wrong, right? So you go to your doctor and they look at you and say, well, everything is okay, but, you know, it may be a good idea to get an EKG, right? So there's a diagnostics that happens. Let's make sure your heart is okay. So that's really, if you want to really define what diagnostics is, it's determining a departure from the ideal. Here is an ideal system, again, quote, unquote, and there's a lot of fuzziness with this, right? But, but let's say if we can define an ideal, how far apart are you from this ideal, right? So that's diagnostics. <coughs> okay, so, so we, I'm going to use these words such as model, analysis, control, and especially diagnostics as we go along. So um, modeling is something um, that I've spent a lot of time on, so I'd like to focus a little bit more on modeling. And finally, uh, and ultimately modeling is not just the technique, but it's also the art of representing a real complex system in a virtual world, you know, a virtual world could be just a set of ideas, could be a set of uh, mathematical equations, could be a set of graphs, whatever, right? So it's it's uh, we are kind of mapping out some re something really complex in a, in a virtual world. So there are some trade-offs with modeling, and this is fairly obvious, right? The more complex the model, the more realistic it is, because reality is in general complex. Um, the s but the simpler the model, the easier it is to deal with. So it's always a tussle between these two. So you know wh what do I do? Do I, do I take a simple model? If I take a simple model, it's easy to deal with, but I'm not able to represent reality well enough. So I'm going to be off in my predictions. Okay, but um, if I wanted to be more realistic, I need I need it to be more complex, right? So 
you know, no, no less than Einstein said basically, you want as simple a model as possible that still explains everything that you want to explain, right. But the idea is always pushed towards as simple a model as possible, not a complex model, right. So that is an important concept in, uh, you know, pretty much all of physics and engineering. And one important point I want to say about empirical laws because a lot of things we talked about, talked about like economic systems. Well, what is a law in an economic system? You know, or what is a law if you are if you're applying something like this to a cognitive system for example, where is a law? Um, and really a lot of them are, uh, we really do not know. You know, there are, there are models that describe how for example, um, uh, a predator prey, right. So, you have a rabbits and foxes, how does a fox population oscillate with respect to rabbits for example, uh, that is a pretty standard dynamic system model. Well, where is a law in that? We really do not have a law, right. We kind of just kind of you know, uh, kind of, you know, come up with some fairly arbitrary things and then observe it and say, ah, this kind of works, so we'll use it. So there is this this problem with um, how good the law, you know, how good a law is that you have. Okay, uh, in economic systems, that's that's in fact often a source of conflict between people. Well, this is not good. This is not good, depending on which uh, spectrum of the politics you come from. Right, that's a typical thing that actually happens. Um, <coughs> should 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 money trickle down or, sh or should it go up? That is actually a part, you know, underlies a certain assumption in the law of economics, okay. Uh, then, you know, the kinds of models, um, I I models can be, you know, there are a lot of issues with this. For example, you know, how big a model do you want? Do you want it to be a deterministic model or a stochastic model? You know, do, do, do you know everything that is going on and can you write this or do you need to say, well, I kind of really do not know, but I have a rough idea what the average values are, for example, okay. Um, okay, so uh, the last one I, I, I skipped over here is linear versus nonlinear. So, you know, what's the concept of linear versus nonlinear? I don't want to get into the mathematics of this, but um, um, but let me just talk about the fact that nonlinear models are the more complex models, and it turns out that all reality is nonlinear. Okay, so if you think about linear versus nonlinear, a simple a simple example might be, um, you know, something that's not linear would be if you look at the fluctuation of temperature over a day, right. So, it kind of you know it is uh, what 45 degrees right now and it drops to 30 and tomorrow hopefully it comes back to 45 and then goes back to 30. So, it oscillates. So, it is not linear you know it oscillates right. So, um, most phenomena you know uh, are the underlying the laws underlying most phenomena tend to be nonlinear. they are not linear. So, why you know why is that a problem? Well, it is a problem because they are qualitatively different not just not just an accuracy issue. It turns out that nonlinear things, nonlinear phenomena that you observe are very different uh, qualitatively, okay. So, as an example is what are called instabilities, okay. Um, instability is, uh, is an example of uh, where things are you know relatively, um, well good example of instability is probably snow. Snow is an instability, right, in the sense that you know it is getting colder and colder and colder there is some mass and maybe you get uh, water meaning rain or maybe you will get um, you know something solid form such as snow. That is an instability does it fall on this side or does it fall on that side okay. Um, lot of there are a lot of you know engineering system instabilities that you observe and usually it is a bad thing. Most of the time it is a bad thing when, uh, when you get a um, uh, instability in an aircraft that usually means it is going to crash for example. Okay, um, so and this only happens in nonlinear systems. So you know that's something we observe, and if we want to uh, predict it, we got to use a nonlinear model. 
Um, there is in fact a word called strange attractors. The word is called strange, it is a, it's a technical word. The very fact that it is strange means tells you there is something strange about it. Attractor is very simple, right? Attractor is something that attracts, that makes a system, dynamic system settle into some value. Okay? So, for example, the temperature settles into some value. Um, what is true, what strange attractors are, are a, are a class of what is called chaos. Okay? And you probably you know, heard about what is called chaos theory, the butterfly effect, which says if there is a um, you know, butterfly flaps its wings, you know, what is the effect that you see? Well, it could be completely different, right? So, there is this concept of tiny little changes somewhere that leads to huge changes somewhere else, right? And that is called, that's called chaos theory. Um, chaos theory is, is why, for example, if I knew everything about um, a, a, let us say, all the properties when I toss a coin, I knew everything about it, my, my fingers and what I do and so on. If I could model everything, I still would not be able to predict if I get head or tails. Okay, so there is an unpredictability about uh, a lot of dynamic phenomena, even if we knew everything about it, even if you knew everything about it, right? Uh, and that is a consequence of chaos, and this is again nonlinear effect. Okay, so chaos theory is, you know, is a very interesting uh, phenomenon that was only discovered, well, it was discovered about 100 years ago, but it was really kind of people have been digging into it only for the last 30 years. Weather is an excellent example of a nonlinear system, and you know, you keep thinking, oh, we're going to be able to predict exactly what happens. Actually, it turns out we will never be able to predict exactly what happens, and that's been proven, right? So that's what's uh, fascinating about this. It's not a question of oh, we're going to get better and better and better with years and with supercomputers. Not really, okay? And that's the concept of nonlinearity. Stock market is ex excellent example. If any of you have money in your retirement account, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it turns out failure, failure of all kinds. Anytime anything fails, it's a nonlinear system. Okay, it's a nonlinear phenomenon. And you, so you need nonlinearities to predict all of these things. That's my point. Which means your model has to have at least that uh, level of complexity to do this. All right. So this has been my, you know, source of uh, uh, interest. All right. Okay. So I'm going to just talk about very briefly about, you know, this. So so far I've been talked about what are called physics-based models. So, um, but I've also delved into another kind of modeling. So I'm going to just describe this and then get into some applications. Okay. Um, so, physics based models uses physics, again it could be, I say physics in quote, because this could be chemistry, this could be biology, this could be, you know, whatever, all right. Whatever kind of law that you have uh, or principle that you have observed, you use that to come up with a prediction, right, with a predictive model. So, that is physics, usually nonlinear, like I just said. And the advantages of using a physics based model, it kind of uh, captures the effect generally, but it is very difficult to um, predict exactly what goes on, right? So, for example, if there was a, so let us talk about something like my human body, which may be better appreciated by most of you, right? So, if I wanted to predict um, exactly when I am going to have a heart attack, God forbid, right? <laughs> okay. Um, and if I had, you know, all measurements done, so they cut, cut me open, they measure every artery, every little particle in my body, and they got all this model. And then they build a physics, chemistry, it is all physics and chemistry, right? So, they build all these models into it and they write this big computer program and they say, all right, now we can tell what your blood is going to do tomorrow and we can put, you know, what food you put in your mouth, the whole business, right? We can kind of start modeling you. Well, it turns out that even in that case, it would be actually, and there are models like that, right? Uh, actually, it would be very difficult to say exactly if I am going to have a heart attack. But what they can do is that people of maybe my general habits and people with my general 
um, you know, constitution, for example, they'd be able to say generically what would happen with me. Okay, not specifically what would happen with you, but generically people like me. So they can say, well, if you put on 10 pounds, maybe you'll have more likely, you know, uh, hood of uh, having a heart attack, whatever. Okay, so they can kind of predict this generality. And that's what's true about physics-based systems. Whether it's machinery you're talking about, whether robotic system, you can kind of generically explain what, you, what happens. Not specifically, okay, it's very difficult to do that. But on the other hand, there are a lot of insights. We love these kind of models because they give us insight, really kind of understand what's going on, uh, you know, what kind of phenomena happens, right? So a lot of the advances that have happened over the last 400 years or so, you know, has really happened because of the development of this. Okay, so let me skip this. So one, let me just uh, make that one point. So nonlinear dynamics makes behavior unknown and unknowable, right, pretty much. Okay. The second thing that I have kind of delved into for the last about 10 years is actually looking at what, what I consider called database models. So database models is where you kind of have data and you establish a pattern. So for example, um, that's how, for example, human beings learn. You know, if you, if I'm learning to play a game, I don't sit down and write a physics model for it. You know, I, 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 I know that if I hit it this way, the ball is going to go this way, right? Why? Because I observe, I do it 100 times and I observe it and from the observation, I draw a pattern, a model for how, you know, my system is going to behave. I know what my strength is, right? All of this is going to be built into this, not using a physics-based model that looks at the forces and all these other kinds of stuff, right? So, a lot of the learning human, human beings probably here happens using a, some kind of a pattern recognition system, okay? Walking, you know, baby learns to walk like this, right? Even language, for example. I'm, I'm, I don't want to say anything that's, uh, that's wrong with some experts in you know, psychology sitting here, right? So, but, um, so, you know, so, but there is a database pattern that you could apply for you know, any kind of system as well, right? So it's often called computational intelligence, sometimes called machine learning, um, you know, and, and um, you know, there are all these kinds of techniques, sometimes called artificial intelligence, right? So the advantage of this is that it captures specific inf information for individual systems, right? So for example, I know if I look at myself in let's say playing a game, I know how I behave. So it's very specific. I cannot really apply it to somebody else that easily, right? So it's very, very specific because unless I collect data about that person, right? So it's very difficult to generalize and it gets better and better with more data. That's why the more a baby walks, tries to walk, the, the better the baby is going to walk, simple, right? The more a baby listens to, you know, uh, other people speak, the more, you know, uh, it, it, she, she or she can speak, right? So the limitations are is data dependent cannot be easily generalized, right? And finally, it's somewhat of a dumb approach because it ignores science. If you, whenever you have science, you know, it kind of ignores it, even then, right? So some, my, my focus has been how do we kind of take this physics-based model and data-based model, they have their own advantages, how do we kind of combine them for all these things we want to do? That's, that's been one of my focus areas, okay? So let me talk about some examples, okay? So we're gonna, I'm going to talk about three examples, machinery, uh, robotics, and uh, biomedical diagnostics. They're kind of different, but I'm going to give you a very high level overview of this. So a lot of the work that I started to do was on rotating machinery. So looking at, which are primarily rotating shafts, okay? So a simplest rotating shaft um, is a dentist drill, okay? A dentist drill is an excellent rotating, because it's a pretty high speed, right? I think it's like 10,000 RPM or so. Um, and you know, I'm always looking at this, and not always. I've had my own encounters with the dentist a few times, but I'm I'm always afraid because I think about what's the vibration at this end, and what's the level of inaccuracy that you're going to get because it whirls around. You know, there's some inaccuracy. 
Uh, but that's a very interesting problem. It's supported at one end, usually on bearings. Um, and of course, any kind of drill that you use, right? A motor shaft um, or, you know, things like this, which is an aircraft engine made by Pratt & Whitney. Uh, and you can see this, that's the shaft, right? And then there are stuff on it, right? And then, you know, these are supported on some kind of bearings, okay? So that's a typical thing, you know, typical rotating machinery. This speed, the speed of this is around 300,000 rotations per minute, right? So that's, you know, it's not unusual for systems to have small, especially small systems to have as much as uh, half a million RPM or more rotations per minute, right? So these are very high speed, uh, you know, spinning shafts. So they bring with them their own problems. Uh, this is a steam turbine. This is, you know, pretty big, uh, made by Siemens. And these tend to be uh, like, like uh, you would go to Pico, you will see that, right? Uh, so these tend to be um, heavy and slower. So maybe like 100,000 RPM rotations per minute or lower, right? So these are, you know, even the slower ones are pretty fast, right? So these are pretty high speed uh, systems and they bring with them a lot of issues. Uh, they're also sort of what I call multidisciplinary systems because they're supported on things like bearings with their own physics. They're supported on electromagnetic bearings which bring electrical systems into it, fluid film bearings which bring fluid mechanics into it. So, um, you know, so you need kind of need understanding from all of these to analyze this, all right? So I've looked at the dynamics of this and the, the, uh, the typical problems that you get with this is that, you know, first is vibration. You got a lot of vibration, right? So you, you don't want vibration and you want to be able to reduce the vibration down to some level, okay? Um, so I'll come to that picture in a second. Uh, bearing failures are quite common. If there is a bearing failure, uh, usually the system will cease. So if, you, if, a, if the, a, a turbine in the Pico nuclear plant, you know, seized up with a bearing failure, we would all know about it because uh, there'd be a, a big problem. You can have fires, you can have all kinds of things, right? Um, so it's not a trivial thing. So they want to prevent the bearing failure before it happens, okay? Um, they can be rubbing, you know, things like that. There's something called oil whirl, you know, the fact that they support on oil actually creates this instability that we're talking about and nonlinear instabilities. Um, cracks in rotating shafts are quite common. Um, you know, they're very, very tiny invisible cracks, but they're spinning and you, really, you cannot stop the machine. You don't know where it, where it is and before you know it, it explodes. And that's again a nonlinear phenomenon, okay? And finally, a lot of the explosions in rotating machinery in, um, uh, you, in uh, oil drilling, a lot of them, the, the, you, every now and then you hear about a fire and explosion, but half of them are related to just the rota rotor dynamics or rotating shafts, okay? Uh, usually they, you know, there's, there's a little bit of extra vibration, something rub, rubs against each other. It's usually a flammable situation. The thing catches fire and then before you know it, uh, especially if it, you have oil or gas, it just explodes, right? So a lot of, you know, every, um, almost um, like explosions due to cracks uh, are about, uh, I, I did a survey about 10 years ago because I was doing some work on that. There were about 120 explosions in 10 years in America, in North America alone, right? Which we don't necessarily hear about. And about, you know, about with, with about six or seven people dying, right? So these are, these are huge, huge issues. And many of them you don't hear about because they're out there somewhere. They're not in, you know, uh, crowded areas, okay? So they are an issue. issue. Uh, this is a, I, I, uh, this I have a disclaimer here. I really don't know if this is caused due to why it was caused. I just, I just said wind turbine failures and I was like, you know, 100 hits immediately. And this is a, a wind turbine. Wind turbine is a rotating shaft. Same thing, right? It's the same, same thing. And here, of course, the problem gets big because, you know, these are hundreds of feet in diameter. I mean, these are huge structures, basically, right? Um, and this has become an issue. So now they're worried about how do we prevent this from happening? 
Okay. So, so that's the job of diagnostics. All right. So the diagnostics is basically can we spot a problem before it turns catastrophic? And why is it so difficult to do this? Like what's the big deal? Because you know we find problems with so many other things, right? So why is this a problem? Well, the first is that typical no model is nonlinear. And like I was saying, nonlinear models don't are not amenable to easy solutions. They're difficult to deal with. Okay? So that's the first problem. Nonlinear models are difficult to deal with. Secondly, Usually most of these systems we are talking about, they are not small, they are like, they are large models. The larger the model, the more complex, you know, the more uh, difficult they are to analyze, okay, the more difficult to, you know, predict. So that is second uh, a problem. The third problem actually is, is a really critical problem that is there is a fuzzy understanding of many mechanisms. That means I really do not know what the physics is. A lot of this physics, underlying physics is, is guesswork, okay, today, right. Uh, and we haven't really, you know, we made some progress, but not enough. So we still don't know why this happens, right? And we just throw something in there. Remember approximations? We come up with some model. Well, that's not quite accurate, right? That's the problem. And then, because in all dynamic systems, this is another key thing. The response could be counterintuitive. Means the way the system behaves um, is not that intuitive. So to give you a simple example, if you take a, you know, a chair, and if you sit on the chair, when it's not a dynamic system, you're just sitting on it. Uh, it'll you know that you know if you um, if you sit on it, and if I happen to be heavier than you, I sit on it, it's going to deflect a little bit more. It's going to go down a little bit more. It's like obvious. Right? It's, it's obvious growing growing up. You know that you know if you put too big a thing on it, it's going to break. So that's a static system. A dynamic system doesn't behave like that. Many dynamic systems, it may make sense to actually make this you know system smaller, make it larger, depending on what happens, right? So a lot of this response. Um, even a linear dynamic system is very counterintuitive. It's not you have to kind of develop the intuition after analyzing it, and that's a problem because you really don't know. For example, one one common issue with a crack: if you could take a crack in a rotating shaft, the the moment you get a crack, your your vibration level goes down. It doesn't go up; it goes down. So you know, if you're in a, if you're driving in a car and your vibration kind of goes up, you say something is wrong with my shocks. That's that's more common, right? But that's not always true. So in situations like this, because of a nonlinear effect, the response wave goes down, and you say oh, everything is hunky dory, no problem. Well, before you know it, you know, then suddenly it goes up and then uh, it explodes, right? So you really, and you know, the, the interesting physical reasons why that happens. So it's counterintuitive. That's what makes it difficult, right? And then what's normal? What is abnormal in machinery? Like you know, you don't know. There's always nothing is going to be ideal. It's always going to have some little defect here and there, right? So, so what's normal, and what's abnormal? When should I stop the machine? So you cannot just keep stopping these machines, you know, left and right. You don't throw away um, a drill because there's a little bit of vibration because it gets hot. Because you don't, maybe it's supposed to get hot. Maybe it's supposed to be a little bit of vibration, and maybe change a little bit, but doesn't mean I should throw it away. You really don't know, right? So the issue, critical issue, is when is the right time to intervene? When should I say, now is the time I need to bring this down and do some kind of maintenance, re replace something, right? That's a very difficult problem. Okay, so so that's something that you know uh, has been occupying my interest, right? Um, and you know as well as so we've been using both physics and database models to do that, right? All right, so so I want to talk about uh, I'm sorry I'm talking about unmanned systems robotics. Okay, so before I go into this, I just want to say that um, there's a, some confusion between unmanned systems and, and robots, right? Um, uh, of course, robotics has been an area for you know at least 40, 50 years now with factory robotics where you have 
you know, if you ever seen a picture of a automobile uh, uh, assembly line, you know, a robot goes in and puts in a uh, screw or you know paints it or something like that. So that's often called factory robotics, right? So that's been there for a while. But the recent interest in robotics, what they call robotics, has been more mobile robotics, which means robots that move. Okay, so there's this you know sort of a fundamental difference between these two. The second thing that is confusing is so-called unmanned systems. For example, uh, the drones that are being deployed in you know primarily in Asia, Pakistan, South Asia, and Pakistan, Afghanistan, right? So those are the drones. The drones are basically unmanned air vehicles, right? But that's really not a robot because it's really more like a it's more like these RC cars that you buy in Radio Shack for $25. Really the same thing except the, the, the remote control is thousands of miles away, right? It's happening here in Kansas or something like that, right? So, so unmanned systems are not necessarily robots. Robot tends to mean that it can function by itself, okay? So, but I look, plug, you know, uh, put them together, right? Um, so here are some examples of uh, current unmanned systems. I, I emphasize current because these exist today. Right. So, uh, let me just go over them very quickly. So, for example, this is a robotic vacuum, right, which is now you can buy in Costco, right. I mean, it's not, when you can buy it in Costco, maybe in six packs, I do not know. Now, it is you know, <laughs> like it is there, you know, it is you, you got it, everybody got it. Um, so, so, you know, how is that? Well, it is unmanned, it, it kind of works by itself, but it is not very intelligent. So, all it does is it comes up against something, it just avoids and walks away and, you know, just something, right. Um, and works very well, you know, it learns. Uh, you know, so I mean, I've uh, you know seen that in uh, working. Um, this is a, a Sony uh, robotic dog. They're you know they uh, or something like that. You know, so they're you know they got all these uh, robotic pets. I think they're they're it's really exploding in Japan apparently, right? Because of old people. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of old people. All the young people have left for Tokyo City, and you know the old people left in the villages. So they're providing all these. Uh, you know, there's a lot of development going on right now. Uh, so these are fairly low, low technology things, right? This is a much higher technology. This is the ASIMO walking robot by Honda. If you get a chance, just search for ASIMO and you know watch a YouTube video on this. Uh, it's amazing, right? It, it walks, walks up steps. They've had it, you know, play soccer, play the piano, you know, does all these things. And so this brings a lot of newer technology into it. Um, this is a Google uh, driverless car, which was really the Stanford car that Google bought with their money, right? Uh, so it's, I wouldn't say Google developed this. But, but it's, a, it's a Prius that has been you know, mod modified in the driverless cars. Uh, the prediction is that by 2020, uh, the first driverless car will appear on the road. By 2030, they say 80% of cars on the road will be driverless, okay? autonomous, you know, relatively autonomous, right? uh, which to me is amazing, amazing pace of progress. Right? Um, that's according to AAA, the prediction according to AAA, not some science people. Right? Um, this is a predator drone, that's the drone that's been remotely controlled. This is an unmanned tank and of course, you know, once you have advanced technology, it's mostly funded by defense. So the defense sees a lot of applications, right? So this is the tank, uh, like this of course, again the DOD. This is a jet ski that's been modified to, uh, I've actually seen this in operation. And this is a, you know, quadcopter, a helicopter basically, right? So, so these are all kind of, you know, unmanned systems. So what do they all in, have in common? So I'm going to show you this, um, there's a lot of uh, detail here. So I don't want you to focus on this, right? Um, so, so let me just show you kind of roughly what a robot, robot looks like. You kind of have this sensor layer. So basically, uh, again, a good way of, think of thinking about robots is to think about human beings. So as human beings, you know, what do we do? We kind of sense, right? We sense things. So I'm kind of seeing something. 
I'm, you know, if I want to walk from here to the door, I'm, I'm using my eyes and maybe my ears too, right, kind of listening to people talking and so on to kind of see the uh, surroundings. Then I perceive, meaning I kind of I have a perception which means that helps me build a model for myself and kind of where I am and what am I doing, that kind of thing, right. And then I control myself, there's a control layer which means I, I kind of control my legs on where they should go, right. Um, and there are many different levels of control, right. And then uh, I may have a higher uh, level of control which says, okay, what do I want to do? I want to go to the door, right? There's a higher level, you know, kind of a thing, right? I want, why do I want to go to the door? Because I want to get out of this room and go down, down the steps, right? So I have this higher level, what's often called mission level control that tells me what, you know, uh, like my lower level limbs what to do. And many times the limbs work by themselves. We don't even consciously tell them, right? If I want to walk, I just walk. I'm not saying, okay, now put the right foot forward and put left foot forward, which is what we uh, tend to tell robots, right? It's kind of just doing by itself because there is often what's called a learned control. The limbs already have learned, you know, what to do, right? So there's all these different levels of control that we try to put into robots, okay? That's, you know, because again, the humanity is a good model for it because we, we know that we are good, good robotic systems, right? Okay. So, uh, you know, the sensor, sen sensor layers would be different for robots from us. They also need maybe a camera, they need a GPS and all these things as you might imagine, right? So that's the typical robotic architecture, right? Now in this architecture, there's one aspect and I talked about mission and you know, like I want to kind of do a certain thing. So there is something called autonomy in this concept, right? So again, I, I'll just give you a general sense of what autonomy is. So autonomy is, is where systems are able to perform diverse missions in disparate environments with minimal to no human action, right? So if I, if I could get a robot to do what I just said, just go from here to there and decide that it wants to go outside, it has a map of it or builds a map as it goes along and actually does it, that's an autonomous system. Now if you think about human beings, if you think about a two-year-old child, actually a two-year-old child would have trouble doing that, right? Um, a, maybe a four-year-old would be able to say, yeah, if I were to go outside the building, I need to go outside this door first and actually figure that out, right? I don't know, I'm just guessing here, two-year-old, three-year-old, I don't know, right? Some could be precautious and figure this out at two years old, right? I don't know, right? You know, you're saying it's, it kind of depends. So autonomy is not a question of yes and no. It's really more of a level of autonomy, okay? So uh, according to the Department of Defense, again, which is into this, there are 10 levels of autonomy. And most of the current robotics uh, technology is something like two or three. So we have a long way to go before a system can get so autonomous that it can kind of do all the whole thing, you know, like a human being, okay? It turns out that this worm, by the way, has been researched a lot. This is called C. elegans and it has 302 neurons. It's one millimeter long. It's been probably the most dissected worm in the world, okay, poor thing. In fact, there's, I think there was a micro, I think it's called a nano knife actually, but it's more like a micro that, you know, would section this in fractions of a micron, right? Uh, and then you analyze the neurons in this and they actually built a, um, I uh, forget what it's called, but the, you know, the, the full map of the neuronal connections, right? And it's the only one that they built it for. So they can understand that, you know, what it does, you know, when, when it does something, how the impul neural impulses flow in the system, okay? In order to understand how is that that is autonomous? It is autonomous. It, it can find its food, it can find, I think it's hermaphroditic, but it can find its mate, right? And then, uh, you know, it can, uh, it performs all the basic bodily functions. Uh, it reproduces, it finds, I mean, you know, it, it tries to run away when you try to uh, subject it to your, your knife, 
right? So, so it kind of does, you know, it does all whatever it needs to do, and we are not anywhere close to that, right? As so, you know, so that's an interesting system. So, one of the questions that I uh, have, uh, you know, uh, proposed, and we actually got a small grant to do this, is how do biological systems develop a virtual picture of themselves? So, does it know? And so, this is a big interesting question, right? Of consciousness, does it know what it's doing, and does it know why it's doing it? Right. So this is a big research topic in biology, right? Um, so and I read a few books on consciousness, which is pretty interesting, right? I, I, I didn't understand much of it, but but I'm saying, you know, do they know what they're doing? So if 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 this worm doesn't know what it's doing, that's not easy to figure out, right? Um, right. It's a big question, but but the question is, does it know that it should be doing this, but it's doing this, so there's some problem with it? So we can have a robot do this, then we have a situation where the robot can correct itself, right? Or kind of figure out what it should do to correct itself, right? So that's the sense of autonomy that we can put into the system, right? Um, and you know, the idea that I have is used some of those models that we are talking about to build it, right? So we just, we just started to do this work. Um, I'm going to skip this because that's basically the concept of that. Okay, so I'm going to just go over a couple of these projects we have done. Uh, I apologize uh, that it's very sketchy, but if you have questions, uh, I can answer them, okay? Uh, so this was something that one of my students did, uh, developed a biped robot. So we were looking at it saying, and this is nothing to do with autonomy, we just wanted to figure out how to build a robot that walks. And you know, people have done this, of course, um, but, but we were looking at, op we were interested in optimizing this, we want to make this better and better. So, so basically we built, you know, two legs that walk, and this is sort of a simulation of a torso, right? And my student actually, I should say, my student did this, he theorized that if you use your torso in some optimal fashion, you will walk with much less energy. And the way he found this out was he was observing videotapes, he played them over and over again of runners. And you know saying that the torso was being used in an optimal fashion. So we wrote a model for this and of course I wasn't happy with the model, in a computer model, so we wanted to experiment it and we actually found that you know something like 90 percent efficiency by doing this, using the torso in an effective manner when you are walking, right. So, the, the, the untold story is that this thing is not, does not have good lateral support. So, if you, it is like a people with ACL injury, it, it's, so if you do not support it, it will just fall sideways. So, but, but it does not look like that, it looks like it is walking. So, um, this was another project I worked on. So, it is an interesting project. So, I, I, I thought I would share this with you on an unmanned sailboat. Uh, so, this is a project, you know, a, a company came to us and it built this unmanned sailboat. These are solar um, arrays. There are solar arrays here and here, so it's powered by solar. It's powered by wind, so these can pivot, you know, like sails. And so the idea was that this would go out in the ocean, and just, you know, survive, forever, and you know, do whatever you wanted to do. And he, and this has this particular boat has spent six months in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, with storms and hurricanes and whatnot, and survived. Right. So I'm not, I don't know how we did this, but it's very very robust. Uh, it finally failed because of a bearing failure. It turned out, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, this is uh, 16 feet. Yeah. Uh, so it's you know it's pretty tall as well, right? Yeah. So it's, a, it's about 16 feet. Um, so it's there's there's a lot of real estate to put whatever you want on it. You know whatever controller. So we help make it uh, somewhat autonomous, right? Uh, he needed to know where does it go. You know, can you point it to a, a certain direction, GPS location, and say go there? So you know you know trying to figure this out. And Dr. Singh also, Polly Singh, in electrical work with. The optimizing the solar system. So, all right. So, 
So, here is another uh, project we did and people here uh, who are part of this. Uh, this is a competition called Robo Boat Competition, it is a national autonomous boat competition. Can you build a boat that will kind of go through a, a channel like this and do certain tasks, okay. It is it's gonna you know like you know they come up with silly tasks, but basically it, it amounts to things like picking out an object, pointing at something without any remote control. So, it is not like a drone, it has got to do it by itself, right. You let it go, it has got to do it by itself, just using a camera. So, this was our boat. Uh, and this is sort of the path it is supposed to kind of go around here and do certain things. Okay. So, you know we did fairly well in this. Uh, so, I have to say that we did not really we are fudging a lot of autonomy in this right, but, uh, but fortunately you know they did not know. So, we ended up winning <laughs> second place. <laughs> Actually I should say that other people were also fudging it. So, we happen to be better fudgers I think. <laughs> what do you say Joe? <laughs> I think so. So, you know actually Joe is here Nick here right. So, we actually ended up winning a second place and this is a national competition with you can say international because a couple of companies uh, uh, a couple of other countries sent teams to it. Um, so, so what happened was this year we got we got we got invited to well we did not invite they put out a call for proposals and we put in a competition for a competition called Robotics. So, Robotics involves a boat like this and this boat is about 16 feet 14 no I am sorry 14 feet. Uh, this is 16 feet, but we had to work with the 14 foot boat. And they selected three teams from US and we were on one of those selected. And there are 15 teams from uh, three each from US, Singapore, Japan, Korean uh, oh this should have been Taiwan sorry. Um, so, you know we are one of them with in team with FAU, Florida Atlantic University, Emory Riddle and MIT. And we are you know getting up for this competition in November 2014. Uh, so, the object this is the actual satellite map of that area. So, this is Singapore and the idea is that you know again it is going to boat is going to kind of take off from here and and this is about order of 200 meters or so okay. So, it kind of take off from here do certain things avoid obstacles that you do not know where they are to begin with. So, the boat has to kind of avoid. So, it is like this driverless car except that the driverless car is a little more difficult because you are doing it on the road right. In, in some ways it is di more difficult because on the road you know um, you could have anything you could have a deer come across there right and the road could curve. But here it, it in some sense is a little easier the competition is a little easier, but in some sense is more difficult because the disturbances are quite significant that is the, the waves and the currents will throw it off quite a bit okay. Uh, but again the idea is to kind of you know avoid obstacles uh, get to a certain point uh, do a certain thing dock itself automatically. Um, uh, you know listen to uh, look at flashing lights and, and get a message from that and actually send a message do all of this in some autonomous fashion no contact whatsoever right. So, it is a competition we do not know how we are going to do, but this is in November right. So, and we have had a lot of uh, support external support for people uh, you know because it is a big budget project okay. So, my last uh, topic here completely different, um, but, but there I hope you will see some commonalities okay. Um, it is on biomedical diagnostics. So, uh, so I, I got involved with this it some sounds strange, but a couple of reasons one is a personal reason I was always interested in this uh, you know uh, especially pediatric uh, issues uh, because of some you know something with my son. And then it turned out that, uh, but I would not just do anything it turned out that you know I would not be able to do anything uh, just arbitrary. It turned out that a lot of the stuff I was doing with machinery diagnostics was very applicable to this biomedical diagnosis. I did not realize this that there is so much of commonality it is almost it is almost like we can take this algorithm change it a little bit and put it on the other one right. It is that common. So, so I kind of got into this and the more I get into this the more I am you know uh, drawn by it. Um, so, 
so I'm going to start with, you know, why do you want to do this? So I'm going to say something bold, um, hoping that nobody here, you know, is represents a doctor, medical doctor. Um, the only good thing I can say is, by the way, a lot of these things, my, the doctors I work with, I, by the way, this project is I'm working with Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, you know, with, well, they're all doctors and they agree with this. They agree with this. In fact, they go out actually and they, they say, they're, they're even stronger than me in saying these things. So this is what I think. The problem in modern medicine is the human body is complicated, probably the most complicated system on earth, almost definitely, okay. Um, Everyone is similar, similar, but they're different. You know, we are human beings, so just talk about human beings. And then we come up with some data and then they say, ah, oh, this is white male between 150, 200 pounds, it kind of applies. If you are black, female, it won't apply. You know, so, so we are similar, but then there are all these differences that seem to, you know, guide, uh, really make a huge difference, right? So we want to say, okay, if you eat this, 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 you do this, you know, will you die? Well, kind of depends. Right, and I, I, I just discovered recently that South Asian uh, Indians, South in, excuse me, South Indians, so Indians from South southern part of India are the highest risk, have the highest risk for cardiac uh, events, right? Thin people like me actually have the highest risk, still have a high risk. So, and and it's like why nobody knows. Is it is it what I eat? Is it what I inherit? You know, nobody knows, right? So there's a lot of these similarities, but there are differences, right? Um, and then I say, alas, we cannot do control experiments, right? It, I think they did, you know, a few years ago. As we know, there are some famous experiments from the 1920s and 1940s in Europe, especially. Uh, you know, we're not, we don't do those things. We don't say, both of you have this disease. We give, give one of you medicine, other one will withhold the medicine, and then we'll see what happens. Not supposed to do that. So we cannot. So this is something we can do with machinery, right? So, so you know, there is a, uh, there's a problem with that, right? So meaning in the amount of information we can get. And I'm interested more in children, and children are even more varied and complex. Children are growing every day, you know, we are working with neonates. Neonates, their body changes like 10, 20 percent from day to day. So you got some data from yesterday, well, it's no longer valid today. The body is different, right? It's amazing, and it's amazing how much changes. Um, so diagnostic, same issue that I had earlier, is a condition normal, abnormal, with human beings, it's even more so. You know, maybe my cholesterol is 250, but maybe I'm just fine, right? And maybe it's, you know, my, one of my colleagues' cholesterol was 110 total cholesterol, and he had a heart attack. It's like, oh, high cholesterol, high. No, not really. We, we don't really know, right? So, is it normal? Well, maybe it's normal. Maybe it's not normal. If abnormal, how do you, you know, how, how bad is it? What can be done? Prognosis can be spot problems. Okay, so looking at the time here. So, so how do we deal with the human body? One is the black data-based approach, right? There is fever, give Tylenol, okay, went away. Didn't go away, now give ibuprofen. Didn't go away, do something else, right? So it's very, very data-based approach. We kind of did this last time, so maybe it worked this time, okay. Second, which is just taking off, right? Just, medicine is just the beginning, saying we kind of understand, oh, this is your picture. Okay, so, uh, so you know, physics, chemistry, <laughs> biology. <laughs> And genetics, right? At local and small level. So they're saying, you know, maybe genetically, you know, people are inclined to something, right? This is uh, showing here a, uh, a cell, basically. So can we use the model, right? And there is some of that that's happening at the um, uh, development of uh, drugs, for example, right? We can understand biochemically what's going on, right? So the question is, can we do better than this? Because clearly, it's not very good. I mean, we are, you know, so many things we really don't know. So um, 
so I, I'm have a, you know, running out of time, so I'm going to kind of skip some of these things. Okay, so I'm just saying, look, we want to make a decision, um, and what we could potentially do is use intelligent, what's called intelligent patient monitoring. So we have the data in a clinical environment. Can we use a um, a model, a computer program, whatever we develop, mathematical model, to somehow help the clinician, right? Not bypass the clinician. We cannot bypass the clinician because the clinician still knows best what to do, a, a doctor still knows what best to do, right? But can we help them, can we give them some additional information, right? That is kind of what we are doing. Um, so there are two problems we look at, okay? One is called PBL and I will skip the expansion, but it is basically a brain injury, okay? That happens after heart surgery uh, and it turns out that it happens, um, you know, in a lot of premature infants, usually with congenital defects like 30 percent of uh, children with congenital defects have this problem and usually specific heart defects, okay. And what does, what does it, you know, what happens if this brain injury, brain injuries are pretty hard to predict, you know, maybe the, because the brain is again a very adaptive organ. So uh, sometimes they just have a little bit of a problem. Uh, in fact, most, most babies who have had heart, uh, heart surgery have trouble um, with balance, like 95 percent, right, have problem with balance. It is probably, you know, related to brain injury. Right? No, they cannot, uh, simple thing, you say, oh, can you kind of do this? No, I cannot. I mean, I am saying 10 year old cannot do that, right. So, there are problems with motors and of course, serious problems can be epilepsy and so on and of course, they could die, right. So, it is not treated, right. Now, it is one of those issues that is not treated. There is no treatment, okay. We can just, they can just, what they would like to do is prevent it, okay. Um, and let us keep this, okay. So, you, you can do, for example, a model for this, this, for this problem and you know you can recognize those of you electrical here recognize there is an electrical engineering model, right. This is not very good, it is a start. You can actually model things like this, right. Um, you can also of course use data, right. So with data what do you do, you know you develop things, you, you collect things like age, you know male or female, oh, this is the diagnosis, you can measure arterial pressures, heart rate, there are a lot of things you can measure, okay, as you know as they are doing surgery, after surgery they can measure these things. Um, you can also measure cerebral blood flow, for example, using uh, an infrared device, you can kind of point a gun at it basically, uh, chemical concentrations and things like that, okay. So, a lot of things can be done. And then what you can do is, uh, again I, I, I do not want to um, overwhelm you with this, but for example, you can look at things like, you know, how is the heart rate varying over a two hour period. And you can do kind of other kinds of statistical analysis on this and say, is this important to predict, right? So, we are looking at that and saying, you know, maybe it has a role to play in prediction. We do not know the mechanism by the way, nobody knows the mechanism as yet, okay. And you can come up with decision trees like this. Again, I do not want, I do not want to show all the details here, but you can say if some quantity is this, then go down this path and if this quantity is greater than this, then you are not going to have, you know, you are going to have PBL or you may not have PBL it is healthy or it, it has this disease, right. So, you can kind of give this date, this, this is by the way what a doctor does, doctor always has a decision tree, you know stick out your tongue, okay tongue is yellow, all right now let us see if your heart, you know your lungs are clear, you know he goes through this decision tree, this, 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 this ah not, no problem, just uh, you know just stay off the, you know Philly cheesesteak will be okay, all right or, or you know you, or you have this problem, you know you, you let, let us give you this and you will be okay, right or this is a problem, let us send you on to a specialist, right. So, he has goes through the decision tree. So, we are kind of, what we are doing is instead of the, instead of the clinician kind of putting it from his head, we are using a computer algorithm using the data to actually develop this decision tree, 
but the decision tree is not does not do it by itself right. So, and typical measures are things like sensitivity there is something called positive predictive value and so on right. Um, you know um, a typical thing that you predict in medicine is is, uh, is there a true positive, true negative, false positive, false negative right which means I am predicting that this is happening that is really true and predicting it is happening is really not true and anybody who has ever had a um, um, what is called a PSA you know prostate uh, screening knows that for example, a lot of there are a lot of false positives it means you are saying there is a there is an issue you know it is quite quite high right it is uh, I think 50 percent or something like that. It, you are saying that there is a uh, there is prostate cancer, but there is not right. So, that has a negative aspect to it. So, that is not good either because then you are going to go through lots of intrusive testing after that and that could actually kill you as well right. So, so you know you kind of want as many true positives and as many you know true negatives as possible right. So, okay. so one other last problem that we looked at is CPR. So, CPR of course, I think you are all familiar with CPR is you know basically you uh, you do this chest compression and you follow it with artificial respiration. And um, as I found out recently you, you know when you, they, they do this they do this at a certain pace and that pace is done to the uh, beat of staying alive, <laughs> staying alive, staying no, no. Okay, it's done, which is very appropriate right it is very appropriate. Um, but that is how they train them that is how they train the residents how they train the nurses right. Um, you know it is approximately is it 100 uh, per minute something like that right. So, so they have this you know uh, sort of uh, approximate thing that they come up with right. But the question is is that right it turns out that very small percentage of CPR is actually effective very small it is like 15 percent or so right. It is very very low percentage. So, CPR is guidelines are based on something that was established in 1960s and people have not looked at this which is amazing to me right. And moreover pediatric cases they have no idea what is the best way of doing this right. So, we have been looking at this right. So, we are saying you know how do you predict or, or rather you know how do you excuse me optimize this procedure in order to uh, get a better outcome. And how do you do this on human beings well we are not doing it on human beings. So, this is being done on pigs at children's hospital right and they are kind of giving us data and you know we are working with. Uh, I think my, st my student Ali is actually working with the pigs I am not I am a vegetarian I stay away from them <laughs> I just the data is clean for me so okay. So, let me skip this so you know we are trying to optimize this okay. So, yes yeah so you know I, I kind of feel for the the residents and all these people who are research assistants the doctors are not doing this I do not think the research assistants are doing CPR on pigs and you know and they induce uh, uh, several heart uh, you know uh, issues in it right essentially you know simulate a heart attack and then they do the uh, and there are two two reasons they do that you know two kinds of things that lead to that you do CPR on and so they do them. The mental image of giving CPR. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> how many pigs do they have Ali? More than 100. There you go so more than 100 pigs and Ali has been working with the with the CPR lab uh, with the pig lab excuse me it is called the pig lab. So, I mean the you know pigs uh, I think as you know probably many of you know it is the kind of closest to human beings in terms of organs and so on. So, they think that we can maybe use that data to predict, but right now we are just modeling the pricks in fact, we are looking at the physical model of exactly what it looks like when you do the CPR and we found some new things that people have not discovered and we think we can optimize it just based on the physics model and then correlate with this data and then try it out. So, we want to go back to children's hospital and say do this and see if this gives you a better outcome. So, so, here is my summary on the medicine stuff medicine in my opinion is in its infancy 
really I do I, I because as a scientific discipline it is good as a database discipline but you know human body is very complicated children is even harder and my feeling is that you need both modeling computational intelligence like we have been talking about also expert opinions and hunches you know doctors hunches are very good especially old doctors older doctors are very good uh, certain point they I think it falls off but <laughs> until, until they reach a certain point older doctors I, I do not trust to be honest with you very young doctors because ultimately it is experience that teaches them what is the best thing. And so there is something called experiential learning that I think that is very important that we want to encapsulate in our, in our analysis actually that is what we are trying to do. So and you know ultimately you want an individual approach. Okay. So here is my concluding thought for the talk. Okay. So dynamic systems are pervasive I hope I convinced you that dynamic systems are everywhere. Okay. Um, the math and science which I, I did not I didn't present here they are surprisingly common. Okay, if you write down mathematical model, sometimes you cannot tell which system you are modeling, they are pretty much the same thing. Okay. Um, and ultimately, the, the, the richness of the, uh, the behavior that you see in all of this, the uncertainty, all of that comes from nonlinearity. Okay. It is the nonlinear dynamics that is at the heart. And the problems are such that are fascinating, but also they are unsolvable in the near future. A lot of the problems are really, um, you can almost tell that they are unsolvable, I mean, they are that, that far out. Right. So, they are very, very complex problems. So, you know, which is what gives us, it is nice, I, at least it will see me through my retirement, is what I am saying, <laughs> what I mean by that near future. And finally, you know, I want to thank uh, Gina for uh, putting this together and for an awesome poster, like I said. I mean, <laughs> so, and of course, I do not do anything, it is all my, you know, students and uh, I've had postdocs over the years and, and a lot of collaborators that I have had here, other universities, at Children's Hospital and so on and so forth at the Navy or uh, they they do, you know, a lot of the figures here, a lot of the slides here came from them. So I thank them. Uh, you cannot do anything without funding. So you know, I've had a lot of funding with all these institutions that uh, supported all this research. And of course, thanks to you for listening to me and not uh, uh, obviously falling asleep. Let's say. <laughs> so um, I think I've finished almost on time. So thank you very much. I'm happy to answer any questions.